2: Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
3: Hiking in the Bull of the Woods area for several days and decided to hike over to Bagby Hot Springs. It was getting late and we noticed on the map a small pond at the base of Mother Lode Mountain. So, we took off the trail and hiked up to it. After finding there were no fish in the small pond, we set up camp and built a fire. After that, we started to scan the cliffs on all three sides of us. We noticed a deer way up on a ledge. A couple seconds later, it looked away from us to the other side of the pond and then got up and slowly walked away. Then we looked toward the direction it was looking and saw a large black hairy figure standing on two legs with arms in the air and holding something white in one hand about the size of a basketball and very slight movements. We observed it for a couple minutes with a very eerie feeling. We wanted to leave badly but it was getting pretty dark and our batteries were dead and there was no trail so we decided to build up the fire to keep it away. In a very short time, we turned away, then looked back again. It was gone, right when it got completely dark, but the moon was bright. A large fir tree on the other side of the pond began to shake and sway, violently off, and on for about one half an hour or more, and then everything was completely silent. Not a single sound. We took turns sleeping that night, if that's what you call it. The next morning finally came, we put out our fire and quickly left. About twenty yards from the pond on our way out, we came across a very expensive fly rod broken in half with a very nice reel and new line and random tracks that looked like a person running fast towards the direction out. We finally made it to the trail and decided to hike out to the car and head for home. Haven't thought about it for years until a coworker asked me if I had ever seen a Bigfoot. I now live in Montana with very few sightings reported, so I thought I would look online for the area I was in and grew up. It's amazing how many have been spotted like in the Skookum area. Not creepy at the time, but when I was a young kid, 810. My friend and I used to wander the forest behind our neighborhood. We used to get so excited to find things and once came across a small campsite complete with the removable back seat of a van, a small fire pit, and a couple cans of food with a dirty pot nearby. This was obviously someone's spot as we came back a couple times a week and things were different. More food, sometimes we would find articles of clothing, But being naive kids, we thought nothing of it and would hang around the spot for hours. During the winter time, we found an abandoned jungle gym in the middle of the woods that was creepy as hell. Around that time, we discovered a small pond that had frozen over. I tried to walk across it, but fell through the ice. I was so afraid I peed my pants. I couldn't touch the bottom and I struggled to climb back onto the ice During my struggle, a small pack of wild dogs, only like three or four, showed up on the opposite side of the pond and started barking and growling. It was awful. I finally got out and we booked it home. I never went back, not even to the little hobo campsite. My then girlfriend and another couple went camping at Red River Gorge in Kentucky. We hiked in a couple miles and set up camp. Then after a day hike we went back out to a store to grab supplies, example beer. In the store some guy made a comment about the other girl with us being hot and her boyfriend was a military type and really bucked up and threatened the guy. We made our way back to camp as it began to get dark and heard a rowdy group of hikers behind us, which was odd given the remoteness of the area we'd set up camp in the hour of day. That's when they yelled out to us saying we looked like we knew how to find a good spot, so they were following us in. They kept going another 150 yards or so, and over the course of the night we hear them shooting guns off, so we instantly put our campfire out and lay down to sleep because we had camped on a ridge high enough that we couldn't get hit by a stray bullet so long as we were laying down. While we'd planned to stay another day, we just hauled out the next morning to find that the military guy's car had been smashed up a bit. Having gotten out of the forest, our phones were now working well enough that we were able to call the state police. As we waited, a guy and a girl from the group came off the trail and apologized, saying that one of the guys in their group had done way too much cocaine that night, flipped out, and ran through the wood in his underwear to his car, and had taken off in the middle of the night, and that he must have been the one to have hit us. As the troopers arrive, we recount the events. The couple says they don't know the guy's name or really anyone else in the group because they'd just met a few of them in jail the night before. So then the rest of the group begin to saunter out, and the cops search them. No more coke, but still plenty of pot and several guns. They cite them for possession of marijuana, small amounts. Give them back their guns as we're sitting there having just given statements against them, and the cops prepare to take off. I freaked out and told them we'd need a police escort out of town and that another officer needed to keep this group back so that we had a head start, which thankfully they did. The cops' plan, though, was to leave us with coke-fueled gun-toting crew who just got out of jail and with new citations because of statements we made in a remote part of a large natural forest preserve. That was their plan, uh... The sun was shining brightly as I headed to the outskirts of town to pick some blueberries. I'd always loved spending time outdoors and the thought of enjoying a day in nature while collecting delicious berries was irresistible. Little did I know that my peaceful outing would soon turn into a spine-chilling encounter with the unknown. As I walked through the fields I met two women and three boys who were also there to pick blueberries. We exchanged pleasantries and continued picking berries together, talking and laughing as we worked. Suddenly, our cheerful conversation was interrupted by an unearthly shriek that made us all freeze in our tracks. The horrifying sound seemed to come from the edge of the woods, not too far from where we stood. Fearfully, we crept closer to the source of the noise, curiosity getting the better of us. As we reached the tree line, we caught sight of a creature that defied explanation. It was a massive, hairy beast that walked upright on its hand legs like a man. It looked like an immense African monkey, but unlike anything we had ever seen before. Panic set in, and we all fled back towards the town, our minds racing with terror. When we reached the park ranger station, we frantically recounted our experience to park ranger Sam. He was a calm and collected man with a kind face that belied his years of experience dealing with the unknown. He listened intently to our story, never interrupting or dismissing our claims. Ranger Sam informed us that there had been other reports of strange creatures in the area recently, but none quite like the one we had described. He decided to accompany us back to the edge of the woods, armed with his trusty camera and a tranquilizer gun, just in case. As we cautiously approached the spot where we had seen the creature, we could still feel the lingering sense of dread that had gripped us earlier. Ranger Sam, however, remained calm and focused. He scanned the area for any signs of the beast, but it seemed to have disappeared without a trace. Disappointed but relieved, We thanked Ranger Sam for his help and headed back to town. The encounter with the mysterious creature left a lasting impact on all of us. We couldn't help but wonder what other mysteries might be lurking in the shadows, waiting to be discovered. The story of the immense African monkey became something of a local legend, and many people ventured to the outskirts of town in hopes of catching a glimpse of the enigmatic beast. As for me, I continued to explore the world around me with a newfound sense of awe and curiosity, always remembering that day when the line between the known and the unknown was so dramatically blurred. The Amazon was a world unto itself, a sprawling labyrinth of towering trees and thick undergrowth. Here the air was alive with the symphony of a thousand creatures, a testament to the pulse of life that thrummed beneath the forest's verdant canopy. Sunlight filtered down in dappled rays, casting a golden hue over everything it touched. The forest floor was a tangle of roots and fallen leaves and natural carpet that crunched softly beneath my boots. The scent of damp earth and the subtle undertones of exotic flora filled my nostrils, a unique perfume that was both intoxicating and daunting. Our group, a band of five seasoned hunters, had been chosen for a chilling task. We were to track down and eliminate an enigmatic beast, a creature of nightmares that had been responsible for a series of grisly deaths among the local population. The expedition took us deep into the heart of the Amazon, a realm where man was merely an intruder. Our quarry was cunning, elusive, and far more intelligent than we had been led to believe. It was as if we were playing a deadly game of chess, with the forest as our board and our lives as the stakes. Encounters with a creature were brief, terrifying, and always unexpected. It would strike from the shadows, its presence heralded by an unnatural silence that would fall over the forest. I still remember the chilling echo of its growl, a sound that seemed to shake the very air around us. It was a sound that haunted us in our dreams, a haunting melody that questioned our sanity. Each attack left us reeling, both physically and mentally. The creature was relentless, its intelligence almost human. Like, it began to feel less like we were hunting it, and more like it was hunting us. Our final confrontation with the beast was a whirlwind of adrenaline and terror. It was then that we employed an innovative yet realistic strategy to kill the creature. Using a combination of traps and fire, we managed to corner the beast. The traps were an array of concealed pitfalls camouflaged with leaves and branches. Once the beast was lured into our trap, we lit the forest floor aflame using a controlled fire line. The flames, bright and hungry, spread rapidly, their dance reflecting in the terrified eyes of the beast. The creature roared and thrashed, but the fire was a formidable foe. Finally overcome by the smoke and heat, the beast collapsed. We watched as the flames consumed the creature turning it into nothing more than ash and smoke. The mission was a success, but it came at a great cost. We had lost two of our own, and our sanity had been stretched thin. As we made our way back through the eerily silent forest, I couldn't help but feel a sense of unease. We had won the battle, but the war with the unknown was far from over. The forest was still there, still teeming with life and secrets. A constant reminder that man was not the only master of this world. So last year I went backpacking in the central Sierras with a friend. We were about to set up camp in a spot just a few feet off trail. I ventured further away from the trail on this rocky area to get a better view of the lake. If you looked close enough, there was a trail, not on any map, but a clear trail nonetheless, that looked like it led to the base of a peak, which is known for climbing. I started following it, and I came across the most peculiar camp set up. It wasn't like any backpacking setup I'd ever seen. There were a couple of backpacking tents, but there was also those white foldable tables, a canopy tent, and a grill. A full-on cabinet-style backyard grill. Clearly heavy equipment that requires at least two people to carry each item. The nearest road was six miles away, and the only way up to that spot was foot or horse. How the hell did they manage to haul all that stuff up there? I didn't see anyone. I saw all that stuff turned around and let my friend know. She went up to check it out, but she didn't see anything. Either she didn't walk down the trail far enough or my mind completely made that up. Maybe the altitude and sun exposure got to me. Low either way, I didn't feel safe staying there, so we camped somewhere else. Anyone know how that stuff could gotten up there? Growing up in a small town 45 minutes outside Tulsa, Life was quiet and simple. There were only two stores and no stoplights in the entire town. Being part of the eighth grade football team was one of the few things that brought excitement to my life. One Friday night after an away football game, we were on our way back home. It was around midnight and the bus had just reached the stretch of road surrounded by sod farms as far as the eye could see. There were no trees or buildings, just flat grassy fields that seemed to go on forever. Most of my teammates had already drifted off to sleep, exhausted from the game. As I stared out of the window into the darkness, something strange happened. A light suddenly came on above us, casting a brilliant glow over the entire landscape. It was a clean white light, similar to an L.A.D., even though this was the mid-90s. It was so bright that it made everything outside look like daytime. The light went on and off in a pattern, illuminating everything around us for one second and then disappearing for two seconds. This sequence repeated itself three times. I was amazed by the sight, as it allowed me to see in every direction as if it were the middle of the day. I glanced around the bus, trying to gauge if any of my teammates had witnessed the same phenomenon. A few of them had stirred from their sleep, rubbing their eyes in disbelief. We exchanged looks of astonishment, wondering what could have caused such a bizarre occurrence. When the bus finally pulled into the school parking lot, my teammates and I couldn't stop talking about the mysterious light. We debated whether it could have been some kind of experimental aircraft, or perhaps even a UFO. The experience sparked a curiosity within us that lasted for years. As time went on, we all went our separate ways, but the memory of that night never faded. Whenever I returned to my hometown and passed by those sod farms, I couldn't help but look up at the sky and think about that incredible light that turned night into day. I still remember that day vividly. I had just pulled out of work and was heading home when a black jeep screeched up beside me. The driver was screaming obscenities at me, and I had no idea what was going on. I pulled over and put my vehicle between us, just in case. The man got out of his Jeep and started screaming at me, accusing me of following him all over town and claiming that he knew I was a cop. I tried to explain that he had the wrong person, but he didn't want to listen. He kept getting closer and closer, and I could see that his pupils were dilated to an alarming degree. I was getting ready to defend myself when he suddenly stood up straight and turned away from me, walking stiffly back to his jeep. He continued to scream at me over his shoulder as he drove away. I was shaken up by the encounter and couldn't stop thinking about how close I had come to having to use my weapon. It was a scary reminder of the dangers of my job as a park ranger. I reported the incident to my supervisor, but there wasn't much they could do without more information. I just hoped that I would never have to encounter that man again, and that no one else would have to go through what I did that day. As we sat at the four-way stop, I couldn't help but feel uneasy. It was dead quiet and the only light came from the moon and our headlights. The other drivers looked just as confused as we did. My dad rolled down his window and asked if anyone knew the way to Menifee. One of the drivers pointed to the road on the right and said that it was the way. We nodded our thanks and continued on our way. As we drove down the dark road, I couldn't shake the feeling that something was off. It was as if we were the only people in the world. Then, out of nowhere, we saw something in the middle of the road up ahead. My dad slowed down, and as we got closer, we saw that it was a man lying in the middle of the road. My dad immediately stopped the car, and we got out to check on him. He was conscious, but he was clearly in pain. He told us that he had been walking home from a bar when a car hit him and drove off. We helped him to his feet and got him into the car. We took him to the nearest hospital, which was about an hour away. As we drove, the man kept muttering to himself. He said that he didn't understand why no one had stopped to help him. He said that he had been lying in the road for over an hour before we came along. My dad tried to comfort him, but I could tell that he was just as shaken up as I was. We eventually made it to the hospital and the man was taken in for treatment. My dad and I waited in the waiting room for hours until we finally got word that the man was going to be okay. We didn't get back on the road until the sun had come up. That night still sticks with me. It was a surreal experience, and I still can't believe that we were the only ones who stopped to help. It makes you wonder what other things go on in the world when no one is around to witness them. It was the late 60s and I was still in high school. I decided to take part in a road rally in the mountains north of Los Angeles, hoping for a bit of adventure. However, I quickly got lost and the moon had already set, making it pretty dark outside. It was around midnight when I realized I didn't have a clue where I was or which direction to take. I decided to keep driving until I came
0: planning for your next trip.
3: across a crossroad or something that would indicate the right path. That's when I heard it, a loud roar that made my heart skip a beat. The sky on my left lit up in a flickering orange-red and the ground started shaking. It wasn't an earthquake. I knew that from living in Los Angeles where earthquakes are commonplace. So I immediately thought the worst. My God, is this the end of the world? Did they nuke Los Angeles? I drove a little further and then I saw it. The Rocketdyne Test Facility. They were doing rocket engine tests for the Saturn 5B that took Apollo to the moon landing. It was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. I could feel the ground shake under my car and the roar was deafening. The sky was aglow and I was sure I was witnessing the end of the world. I quickly turned around and drove as fast as I could back to civilization. The next day i learned what had happened and i was relieved that it wasn't the end of the world i couldn't believe how close i had come to one of the most significant moments in human history it's funny how life can take unexpected turns years later i became a park ranger and i still think back to that night when i got lost in the mountains and stumbled across the test facility It's a reminder that we should always expect the unexpected, and we should never take life for granted. I met a good friend in school. It was kind of an uptight religious school. I was raised in the church, but this friend that I met, he was there for other reasons. I kind of tried to talk to him about religion from time to time, but he kind of blew it off. One day, he said, why don't you come over to my house? He said, this is what my mom and I kind of do in our spare time. So we go over there, and he has a real nice house, kind of ornate. You know, uh, a lot of collectible household items, and one of the items he has in this big open garden area is a wijah board. So he convinces me, which goes against everything my mom had told me, Don't you mess with that stuff because something could attach to you. It could follow you back if it wants to. Just leave it alone. So me being a teenager, I was let me try it. So we gave it a shot, and we got a few interesting responses. I was like, okay, that's that. So fast forward now, we're in our late 20s. I'm in school. Well, actually, I had just left college to move back in with my mom to help her with my grandmother. She was suffering with dementia at the time. My friends calls us up at maybe 3 or 3.30 in the morning. It was December. It was cold, snowing, and I could just hear him, my friend. He was just crying hysterically. So I get up, confused, in a daze, asking him, What's going on? And she, Francisco's mom, Says he needs our help. Grab your keys and let's go now. You know if he lives a few miles away. We get to his house and he's standing outside in the snow with no shoes on. Just an undershirt and jeans. He immediately gets in the car. Starts crying again. He just shaking uncontrollably. Probably from being cold and being scared. He starts to calm down and we ask him, What's going on? What's happening in there? He says, I came home from hanging out with some friends. He's like, I smelled this awful smell, almost like sulfur. He's like, I paid the mind to it, I looked around the house. He's like, it's not until I came to my living room I seen a man sitting on my couch. The man was very, I guess in his terms, the man was very good looking, very well kept. My friend had a dog, a big Rottweiler, and this Rottweiler instead of barking and going crazy and wanting to attack this guy, sat right next to the man. The man was kinda just stroking the dog. He said that when he looked at his eyes, his eyes were gray. There was no pupil. There was no white that it was just completely grayed over, and I don't know if there was some type of... There was no verbal communication, he said, but the look. Maybe not not in his words, but maybe some type of thoughts. He felt his thoughts were being read by this being. He just, he said it felt like his soul was being taken from him, and that this being you, I have you right where I want you. Like I said, when he had gotten to the house, he had already in order for him to have gotten out of the house. I should have explained this a little bit better. He had to break the window out of his bedroom. So we just, my mom and I are like, do you have a key to get back in? The sun is starting to come up, you know, four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. We were like, we really didn't want to go in there, but let's go in there. So we started to make our way into the house and the house is a wreck. Cupboards are basically torn off hinges. Food and dish plates are scattered all over the kitchen floor. There was even dog vomit in the living room and multiple areas of the house. Like I said, I was born and raised in the church and nowadays too many people want to recognize the good, but there is evil out there. This certainly opened my eyes to it because seeing what I saw, what I sensed, the atmosphere was heavy just walking in that house and just knowing that. Why would he, why would my friend go to extremes to break a window out of his own home? He said once he felt that, as I was explaining, once he felt that a part of him, a part of his soul was being taken by this entity, he stills insists that it was the devil. He said once he started feeling that awful feeling, he rushed to the front door. The door wouldn't budge. It wouldn't open. Nothing. So that's why he decided to break out the bedroom window. It was everyone I told the story to after that, or who were familiar with my friend. They were shaken. So we called the priests over to come and bless the house, and even the priests were. They had a look to them that maybe there really was something here that we can't explain, and during the prayer, my friend, the one who went through all this, he straight fainted on the floor, so I don't know if... It was a possession, but whatever happened, something happened. When I was 17, I was at my friend's apartment building, which his parents owned. It was a pretty old building in the Pilsen neighborhood of Chicago, and according to his dad, it used to be owned by Al Capone, but I'm not sure how true that was. We had an apartment on the top floor that uh, let us use to just hang out, and it allowed us easy access to the attic. It had a lock, but we had a key, so we could go out to the roof and smoke cigarettes. One night, we were about to go up, but I had to pee, so I told him I'd meet him up there. After I was done, I went up the stairs to the attic portion that was connected to the roof. There were no lights, so we always used our phones to guide us. We had those old flip phones without lights, so you only had the light from the screen to help navigate the cluttered mess that was up there. As I made my way to the roof door, I saw a shadow pass by me. Now, this wasn't like the shadow of something moving with the light of my phone. This shadow felt solid like a person. I followed the direction. It went thinking it was my friend. I kept saying that I knew it was him and to stop playing around. It passed me a few more times before heading to the other side of the attic, and that's when I heard my friend's voice from downstairs. He got a call from his girlfriend and was in another room, talking to her the whole time. It really freaked me out since I know I was following something, so I basically jumped down the stairs. I told my friend what happened and that I did not want to go back up there, and he agreed, so we decided to go for a walk instead. I was on holiday staying at an old cottage went out to the beach with my mom, dad, and sister, and left my grandma in the house. She fell asleep sitting in a chair in the lounge. At one point, whilst we were still out, my half-asleep nan saw a woman wearing a lilac dress walking through the room. She assumed it was my mom back from the beach. She woke up a short time after and couldn't find us in the house. When we got back from the beach a couple of hours later, she said, "'Oh, did you go out again?' you were back ages ago. We told her that we had only just got back, and she told us she had seen my mom wearing a long lilac dress in the lounge. This obviously wasn't possible. During this holiday, I was sharing a room with my sister as we were young, and in the middle of the night, we heard the front door slam loudly. Our parents came running into our room, but we were both still in our beds. I scrambled and looked out the window, which was directly above the front door. But no one was outside and my dad went straight down and could find no one in the house. Another day my mom went to the bookcase in her room and took a random book out. Placed within the pages there was an old handwritten note. It was personal written by a lady and she got a feeling that she shouldn't be reading them. She put them back into the book and put the book back on the shelf. The next morning, when she woke up, the note was on her bedside table. She asked my dad if he had moved it out of the book, but he had no idea what she was talking about. We would also find that the furniture had moved downstairs overnight sometimes. My mom also kept finding curtain hooks in her bed and on the side table, the plastic things that hold curtains to the pole. Again, she asked my dad if he had. Put them there, and he hadn't. When we came to leave, the owner of the cottage came to collect the keys, and my mum asked her if there was a cleaner who might have visited, and the owner said no. Why? My mum explained that my nan had seen a lady in the house wearing a lilac dress. The lady said, oh, she's at it again. The house was owned by her grandmother, who had recently died. Her favorite outfit was, you guessed it, a long lilac dress. Apparently, they had already had the house blessed because she had made a couple of other appearances. When she died, they didn't clear her stuff out of the house and just put it up as a holiday rental, which is why the note hadn't previously been found. Once we left and went home for the next few years, my mom would find curtain hooks in her bed at home. I moved out of our family home to go to college or uni, and at my student house, I once found a curtain hook in my bed there. There were no curtains in the house, only blinds. My mom stopped finding them in her bed after a few years, but believes it was the woman in lilac. My whole family witnessed all of this, so it adds credibility to what happened, combined with the owner's testimony about her grand. A little backstory: My husband and I run a trap line. We catch raccoons for skins, and we make dog food from the rest. We had been setting about 20 traps on my brother-in-law's property, a little over 10 wooded acres with a creek since the coons had been destroying his trash cans. Then the herd a little. Every morning right around 5 a.m., we would load up the trap tools and head out to check the line for a little over a week. We would hear sticks or leaves crunching just out of sight. The property is insanely overgrown in places, and you are lucky to see five feet. We would brush it off and keep checking the line. After all, we both had guns, and there is wildlife out there that is perfectly capable of crunching on a stick. At one point, right before dusk while we were resetting traps, I told my husband quietly that I I smelled cigarette smoke. It was getting dark, so we headed out pretty quickly, since we rarely carried guns at night. By this point, we were both annoyed and a little concerned, because whoever was out there had been close enough we could smell them, but not see them. Being watched is always a little unsettling. Several days went by without issue, until one morning I woke up feeling crummy, dead of winter, and I caught the flu. Well, when you farm and have a trapline, you don't get sick days. I bundled up and we headed out, but when it came time to cross the creek, always fun at 5 a.m., you had to balance on a dead tree while you carried a crap tune of equipment. I stayed behind. I walked along the creek where I could and back onto the trail where I couldn't to give my husband a heads up if we had caught anything. We are down to the last trap, and I see something hauling off towards my husband, so I chamber around into my .22. For those of you who haven't been around guns, a .22 is basically rodent shot. It would take a darn good shot to kill anything larger than a medium-sized dog, thinking a stray dog is going after him, but I stop short from yelling when I see something else moving. There is a man less than ten feet from my husband, hiding behind a tree while his dog growls and snaps. He hasn't seen me. I kneeled down, put the safety back on so I could safely look at the guy through my scope. He was older, maybe mid-forties in ragged clothes. I kept one eye on him and one on the dog. A large lab, mix who was still burying its teeth. My husband had his pistol out and was very slowly chambering around in case the dog lunged. It wasn't until the bullet clicked into place that the man stepped out very deliberately. He didn't speak. Didn't call off his dog. Just stood there, staring at my husband. The dog is still growling. Can I help you? You're on private property and you need to get your dog before. A shooter. I used to hunt here. Sir, please get your dog. There was a deer stand here i used to hunt here are you on the lease this is my brother's property and you are trespassing please put that leash on the dog i used to hunt here you didn't bring your wife today i see my husband scanned my side of the creek looking for me before answering no i didn't she has the flu you need to go home to her then you know i used to hunt here Then he whistles, the dog walks to him. And they walk off into the woods, not back towards neighboring properties, but onto timber, land where there are no roads or houses for, maybe 30 miles. Before he completely gets out of sight, he yells back, Tell your wife I will quit smoking. Needless to say, we jabbed sticks into the empty traps and got the hell out of there. When we went to pull the traps out for the season, there were cigarette butts next to every single one. A couple years ago I got home after hanging out with friends to my mom freaking out and on the phone. Turns out my baby sister, she was five at the time, was missing. I live in an apartment building and my other sister, she was probably elevenish, was at her friend's place, also lives in our building. The friend also has a sister close to the age of my baby sister so I told my mom to calm down and to call the friend's house to ask for my sister soon after my sister comes back freaking out because she didn't bring our baby sister along i'm here freaking out wondering where the f she could gone and my parents are running around a 21-story building looking for her they found her on the second floor alone and when they asked her why she left she simply said i was following my imaginary friend This is an encounter my girlfriend and her friend had a few years ago, not mine personally. I've heard her tell this story a few times before, but after recently hearing them together describe what they saw, I thought maybe you would enjoy it. Maybe someone has seen something similar. This encounter happened in Lakewood, New Jersey, a few years back. It was midday sometime in September. My girlfriend and Her friend used to jog together regularly at local parks. The park they were at this particular day is called Lake Carasaljo, which butts up to a housing development. The trail they were on loops around the lake, and three quarters of trail is basically just a normal paved sidewalk that follows a road but eventually turns to dirt and through a small wooded area on the far side of the lake. The other one quarter of the trail, Mind you, this place is far from being remote. It is New Jersey, after all. While jogging through the wooded part of the trail, they came upon a creepy humanoid-looking figure on the edge of the trail that stopped them both in their tracks. They both keep referring to this. Thing is troll-like. It was short, maybe four feet tall at most. It was dressed in a long, black-hooded cloak hunched over, sitting on a wooden chest. Yes, a wooden chest. Exactly the kind you'd imagine a troll to be sitting on. They said they could not see any face at all because its head was directed at the ground and the hood was too long. But what they did notice was the cloak was short enough to see part of its legs and was wearing what looked like regular flesh, colored stockings, and had very small clubbed feet. Its legs had large protruding boils or tumor, like lumps on the exposed area. It was wearing blue gloves, too. Terrified, they eventually made their way past this thing, coming only a few feet from it, hoping it wouldn't jump out at them. They got the hell out of there faster than they'd ever run before. It didn't say anything or try to cause them any harm. It just sat there, hunched over. They thought at first that maybe it was just a mannequin or something someone put there as a joke, but they noticed hand movement right before they passed it. Needless to say, they have never gone back to this lake ever again. Every time my girlfriend talks about this encounter, I can hear the fear in her trembling voice and was obviously somewhat traumatized by the encounter. Even though I geek out about these types of stories all the time, she has absolutely zero interest in any of these types of things. She will roll her eyes or shake her head and tell me I'm crazy when I tell her about a cool story of Bigfoot or aliens or whatever that I read about, trying to pique some interest in her on these types of subjects. However, she continues to want nothing of it. I'm a very open-minded person when it comes to this stuff. I can't say I believe in anything cause I've never had a convincing encounter, aside from hearing a few strange sounds in the woods I couldn't explain. I always ask myself, is it possible creatures, aliens bagfoot exist? The answer is usually yes, but then again, someone just playing a prank to mess with people is extremely more logical sometimes, especially in a place like New Jersey.